Good evening. Hot air balloons for Cuba. That's the request from the governor of Florida. And what's happening in South Africa? We take a deep dive into the fight for freedom in South Africa. Again, it is back. And Schumer and Booker, two United States senators who say it's time to legalize marijuana. And why did 93,000 people die of heroin overdoses, opiate overdoses in 2020? With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, July 15th, 2021. Cuba's Prime Minister Manuel Marrero announced the lifting of limits on the non-commercial importation of medicines, food and toiletries to the island nation. The temporary import policy seeks to reduce the shortage of basic goods in the country by passing the U.S. economic, financial and trade blockade in place since 1960. The news came as right-wing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he's also a presidential hopeful or will be, according to my sources, pressed the White House today to provide Internet service to anti-government protesters in Cuba. One of the most effective things we can do as a country, and we need President Biden to step up to make this happen, and I've spoke with the FCC Commissioner Carr on the phone, we can be able to be helpful to getting internet back onto the island of Cuba. The one thing that communist regimes fear the most is the truth. And so, Mr. President, now's the time to stand up and be counted. And that's Ron DeSantis. He also floated the idea of giant balloons as floating Wi-Fi hotspots to allow images of dissent to stream unabated from the Cuban nation. Meanwhile, protesters blocked the Palmetto Expressway near Hialeah for about 30 minutes last night. That's in South Florida. On Tuesday, they blocked the same highway for hours during the rainy rush hour. Near Tampa, another city on the west coast of Florida, a group of protesters attempted to take over an exit ramp at an interstate highway. A demonstrator was arrested for assaulting a police officer. Earlier this year, DeSantis signed into law a Florida bill boosting penalties against demonstrators and adding criminal penalties for organizers of demonstrations that get out of hand. The law makes it a felony to block some roadways and give immunity to people who drive through protesters blocking a road. The bill was introduced after last summer's protest for racial justice, during which some Black Lives Matter protesters were met by police with tear gas and arrests when they took to the streets for days at a time. During his press conference, DeSantis Sanders again sought to differentiate recent protests over Cuba from those last year. He said, Cuban Americans who are out demonstrating, they're not violent riots. They're out there being peaceful and they're making their voices heard and we support them. But he adds, demonstrators should not be shutting down roads that could impede traffic and commerce. Hmm. And across the world, Police officers and soldiers were seen patrolling the wrecked streets outside the ransacked shopping center in a township in Johannesburg, South Africa, yesterday. The cleanup comes after a wave of social unrest and looting swept through many parts of the nation. Armored vehicles were seen patrolling the devastated area and facing off potential looters, while members of the taxi association drove looters away, threatening them with handguns, as community members mourned the body of a young man under a blanket in an open field. 25,000 South African troops began taking up positions today to quell week-long riots sparked by the imprisonment of former President Jacob Zuma. At least 117 people have been killed in the violence. 
The unrest erupted last week after Zuma began serving a 15-month sentence for contempt of court for refusing to comply with a court order to testify at a state-backed inquiry investigating allegations of corruption while he was president from 2009 to 2018. The unrest continued in KwaZulu-Natal, Zuma's home province. There were renewed attacks on shopping centers and several factories and warehouses were were smoldering after being hit by arson attacks. A member of the South African Communist Party, a former fighter in the armed wing of the African National Conference, a former intelligence service head and former member of the National Executive Committee of the African National Congress, is Ronnie Casrills. The ANC battled the racist apartheid state of South Africa for decades before its leader, Nelson Mandela, was elected president in 1994. Casrills says the arrest of Zuma had unintended consequences when thousands of South Africans took the opportunity to protest the nation's vast gap in living standards. In conjunction with the man beginning to serve a sentence, within the first weekend, which was after about three days, a couple of days after the incarceration, there was a sudden anarchy on the highway out of the Zulu kingdom. Violence on the roads in which a score of the high transport, high value trucking, the major artery, and that's cut by very few people in number. It's very easily done. Within days, there's the outbreak of looting in a country like South Africa with the huge wealth gap, with the unemployment, poverty, the inequality, and actual hunger, because things have got far worse for 60% of the people. There's been an absolute celebration of the wretched of the earth, that carnival of what romantics talk about, the carnivals of the oppressed. And Casual said the events over the weekend were anything but a carnival. Casuals, who trained guerrilla fighters from bases in Angola before apartheid's collapse, says the ANC may have made too many deals with business interests to ensure a peaceful transition to a power back in the 1990s. And now the country is paying the price. There was an element of naivety on our part. There was an element of undue optimism and overlooking the economic compromises that were made with big business. And I'm mentioning that because that's the chickens coming home to roost. That's South Africa with a social democratic orientated ANC, anti-imperialist and getting ensnared in that particular web And this explains everything from Trumpism to the rise of the right wing in Europe to the absolute huge inequalities, never mind COVID vaccine nationalism, which has come to represent the enormous differences in the world in a world of, as you Americans coined the term, the 1%.
And Jacob Zuma was arrested on July 7th. He had received a 15-month prison sentence for contempt of court for refusing to appear before a state commission looking into corruption allegations against his government. Separately, Zuma faces 16 other charges, including racketeering, fraud, and money laundering related to a $5 billion arms deal. Castro says Zuma had snubbed his nose at the law while enriching himself. What led to Zuma's arrest? So it starts with... The seeds of corruption I've referred to from 2005, it's left unattended. There are attempts to charge him. He uses endless numbers of legal spin doctors to follow what he terms a Stalingrad defense, in which he means that we will fight from building to building and street to street. We'll fight at every turn in terms of lawfare, basically to keep him out of the orange overalls. And that Zuma was attempting to force from power his chief rival, another former president, Thabo Mbeki, who had appointed Zuma as deputy president in 1999. Mbeki had denied HIV cause AIDS, contributing to a health crisis that killed 300,000 people in South Africa. Eventually, Mbeki was deposed and replaced with Zuma. Again, Ronnie Casrals. Basically, stage a coup against Mbeki, his really hated opponent, who he resents enormously for Mbeki's intellectualism, for what he regards as his arrogance, for what he regards as a person standing in his way from his true destiny of becoming president. And he manages to do that in a pretty assiduous manner, uh, using all the tricks in the book. And he's able at that stage to unite what was called the coalition of the injured. And that were people who had all felt that they were victims of Mbeki in one way or another. Casual adds, the answer to South Africa's problems is the government. He compares to Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal in the United States with one purpose, to create jobs. To create real jobs, to put money in people's pockets, to put food on the table, to get a turning point which at one fell swoop will not only deal with the socio-economic crisis, but will deal with these pretense so-called revolutionaries who, who support Zuma and have used that facade against the Ramaphosa leadership. It, it's, it's that approach that's needed. Ronnie Casrals is a member of the South African Communist Party Central Committee and the African National Congress. He's the author of several books, including The Unlikely Secret Agent, about his wife of 45 years, who operated as an undercover agent of the ANC during the apartheid era, armed and dangerous about his life in the armed struggle against apartheid and catching tadpoles, shaping of a young rebel. And in Washington, the Senate's top Democrat is backing a bill striking down a longstanding federal prohibition on marijuana, embracing a proposal that has slim chance of becoming law, yet demonstrates growing public support for decriminalizing the drug. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is the sponsor of the effort unveiled today, underscoring how a once fringe idea is increasingly mainstream. The bill is being introduced at New Jersey Senator Cory Booker and Oregon's Ron Wyden, both Democrats. Schumer and Booker spoke earlier today. For the first time, I as Majority Leader 
Senator Wyden is the chairman of the Finance Committee, and Senator Booker, one of the foremost champions for justice and equity here in the Senate. We are all joining together to release draft legislation to end the federal prohibition on cannabis. This is monumental, because at long last, we are taking steps in the Senate to right the wrongs of the failed war on drugs. I was the first Democratic leader to come out for the legalization of marijuana, and I will use my clout as majority leader to make this a priority in the Senate. The war on drugs has really been a war on people, particularly people of color. This is a grievous reality. Lives are being destroyed every single day. And the hypocrisy of this is that right here in the Capitol, now people running for Congress, people running for Senate, people running for president of the United States readily admit that they've used marijuana. But we have children in this country, people all over this nation are veterans, black and brown people, low-income people, now bearing the stain of having a criminal conviction for doing things that half of the last four presidents admitted to doing. We are in the midst of a grievous moment of injustice, and it is deep at the core of who we say we are, equal justice under law. Senator Cory Booker, Senator Schumer acknowledged that not all Democrats support the bill. That includes President Joe Biden, who said he supports decriminalizing marijuana, but believes the federal prohibition should remain. Though 18 states have legalized recreational use and 37 allow for some sort of medical marijuana, the remaining federal prohibition has created headaches for the industry in states where it's legal, making it hard for businesses to get banking services and loans. And in more drug news, although it can be argued that in 2,500 years no one has ever died from ingesting too much pot, the same can't be said for opiates. Usually, as many as 70,000 Americans die from heroin, Oxycontin, fentanyl, and other dangerous drugs each year. That number made a shocking jump last year. Yesterday, the U.S. government reported 93,000 people died from overdoses in 2020 in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Kasia Malinowska is the director of the Global Drug Policy Program at the Open Society Foundation, an organization promoting drug policies rooted in human rights. She says decades of the failed war on drugs are responsible for the deaths and lurking in the shadows, a scapegoating of drug users that may have more fearful consequences. Access to treatment is incredibly, incredibly sort of low and patchy, partially because of healthcare issues and insurance issues, right? And also quality of treatment. I think our treatment is sort of very sub-quality. The only option is really the preferred way to go. So people don't want to go into treatment. And even if they do, they often don't have health insurance. And then we are demonizing people who are using drugs. Stigma plus, plus lack of access to treatment plus lack of acceptance of the fact that people do use drugs. If we want to be helpful to them, we need to be setting up harm reduction services, meeting them where they are with overdose centers, which are so difficult to open in the United States. I mean, we've created a perfect storm for this disaster. And so am I surprised? Not, no, but am I heartbroken? Of course. That is many lives to lose, that every single one of them was preventable. It's horrific. Just recently, New York State made a settlement, $4.5 billion settlement with Purdue Pharma, the OxyContin maker, and 
family members of people who've died who've been angry at this company uh, are outraged that it wasn't more. Is, is that really at the heart of this problem? It's not at the heart of the problem. Uh, pharma shares some responsibility, of course. I think what we need to do is look at larger structural issues. An example that I often use, if I am a drug-using mom uh, who requires harm reduction services, walking into a needle exchange program immediately makes me vulnerable to having my children taken away. Why would I self-identify as a drug user? Anytime where there is stigma, anytime where there is criminalization, people will do everything they can to hide their drug use. And so we've created this society where the only way to go is to basically hide your use, not be honest about it. And then when you do want help, we actually have very narrow pathway to treatment. Often people are not eligible because of health insurance issues. Last year, with isolation, with deepening economic vulnerabilities, we've created a perfect storm of misery for people. Is that surprising? When I saw that number, was I surprised? No, but I was just heartbroken. What's the way out of this? We should tell every person who is using drugs if they are in need, there are services for them that are tailored for where they are. If they don't want to quit, there is drug testing for them where they can actually test their drugs and then make an informed decision. If they need other harm reduction services, those services will be available. They will not be punished for their use. They will not risk losing their children. We need to be real about needs of people who are drug using. And then we also have to be generally understanding that at the time of economic and social distress, people are self-medicating with drugs. Let's stop pretending that doesn't happen. Let's stop pretending that it's some minority of people that we need to shun that engages in that practice. Let's talk about it. Let's bring it out of the shadow and provide those services that people truly need. And if it means that some people are gonna continue use, let's help them use safely until the time when they may choose to stop. Cassia Malinowska is the director of the Global Drug Policy Program at the Open Society Foundation. While prescription painkillers once drove the nation's overdose epidemic, they were supplanted first by heroin and then by fentanyl, a dangerously powerful opioid in recent years. Fentanyl was developed to treat intense pain from ailments like cancer, but has increasingly been sold illicitly and mixed with other drugs. And as COVID cases and hospitalizations are rising around the world and across the United States, especially among the unvaccinated, the Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Vivek Murthy, had this warning. Today, I issued a Surgeon General's advisory on the dangers of health misinformation. Surgeon General advisories are reserved for urgent public health threats. And while those threats have often been related to what we eat, drink, and smoke, Today, we live in a world where misinformation poses an imminent and insidious threat to our nation's health. Health misinformation is false, inaccurate, or misleading information about health, according to the best evidence at the time. And while it often appears innocuous on social media apps, on retail sites, or search engines, the truth is that misinformation takes away our freedom to make informed decisions about our health and the health of our loved ones. 
During the COVID-19 pandemic, health misinformation has led people to resist wearing masks in high-risk settings. It's led them to turn down proven treatments and to choose not to get vaccinated. This has led to avoidable illnesses and death. Simply put, health information has cost us lives. Dr. Vivek Murphy is the Surgeon General of the United States. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. With crumbling infrastructure in public schools across the country, which failed to address students' needs, along with the ever-present climate crisis rearing its ugly head day after day, New York's freshman Congress members, Jamal Bowman, along with progressive colleagues, have unveiled a new plan. Angela Palumbo reports. New York Congress member Jamal Bowman is co-sponsoring the Green New Deal for Public Schools Act in the House of Representatives to address the climate crisis. The ambitious new legislation would provide tools to combat climate change in public schools across the nation. We are looking to invest $1.43 trillion in our public schools over the next 10 years, specifically targeting schools that have been historically disenfranchised. Bowman and his 22 co-sponsors of this Green New Deal for Public School bill are tackling climate change on a narrow scale, targeting schools with a specific focus on those that have been historically marginalized and neglected for decades. So climate change is real, it's here, and we need to do something about it. And schools, as the heartbeat of our communities, can be the epicenter of clean, green, renewable, sustainable energy, not only for themselves, but for the community, the extended larger community. The overall goal of the bill is to make a transformative investment in public school infrastructure. This would be done by upgrading every public school building in the country, addressing historical harms and inequities by focusing support on high-need schools, and hiring and training hundreds of thousands of additional educators and support staff. If enacted, the legislation would fund 1.3 million jobs per year and eliminate 78 million metric tons of CO2 annually. That's the equivalent of taking 17 million cars off the road. So very clearly, this is about environmental justice. This is about economic justice. And this is about racial justice and pushing back against systemic forms of racism, which live in our school buildings, literally in the concrete and materials that were used to design and build our buildings. Representative Bowman is encouraging his colleagues to be on the right side of history and to back the bill. New York City School Chancellor Maisha Porter says there is no doubt the Green New Deal for public schools will help New York City and districts across the nation to strengthen their academics, build greener schools, and combat climate change. She tweets at Rep Bowman, thanks for championing a plan that puts children and underserved communities at the center. Angela Palumbo, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Angela. And the population of homeless youth is often overlooked. That's according to a coalition of youth advocates. They explored how the city is failing and what can be done. Clark Adamitis reports. On any given night in New York City, there are over 45 unaccompanied youth under the age of 25 living in shelters and on the streets. According to the Coalition for Homeless Youth, young people are often forgotten and not a part of conversations about homelessness and don't have access to much of the city's resources and support. I've actually been homeless. The system tends to react rather than being proactive. Tamane Hamilton is an activist with Neighbors Together, a community center committed to ending hunger and poverty. He says there's a lack of understanding of what a young person needs. Growing up, I had behavioral issues. Rather than receiving the supports, 
it was kind of allowed to continue on, which uh, helped to create instability, which was already present with my mom and uh, my father being absent in the household. Maybe the system is not understanding young people, not understanding the needs like mental health, substance abuse. My mom dealt with substance abuse and, and so did my father. And so that created instability as well, which just wasn't addressed until everything went drastically wrong. I guess I would start by looking at, you know, how can we support young people earlier on? I mean, like really early, like maybe even six years old. Joanne Villarin says what's needed is access to affordable housing and programs. She is the director of the Safe Horizon Street Work Project. Once people age out of, of youth programs and move into, um, into the next phase of their lives, the resources dry up and they're not, as, they're not as helpful. One of the things that I think would be really helpful for young folks is for there to be an expansion for programs like Summer Youth Employment Program, where folks can have more consistent access to employment and to training and learn experience um, so that they can confidently join the workforce and make income that, that would help them to be able to, to afford to live in New York City. Another thing obviously is affordable housing for folks. There are great numbers of criteria that young folks have to uh, fulfill in order to access things like supportive housing. And even at that, supportive housing can be really limited in how long someone can access a stable place to live. I remember when I was in school, I would constantly hear, if you don't do good, you're going to be homeless. And like to be homeless is like the worst thing to happen in society. Maddox Guerrilla is an activist who was homeless in his youth. He says systemic problems are at the root of youth homelessness. In our education systems, we're starting off by ostracizing folks that are experiencing homelessness versus actually starting with like equipping people with resources from then to succeed or, or, or intervene, right, when people are experiencing housing instability. Guerrilla says that by addressing issues like systemic racism and how the homeless are ostracized, doors can be opened to getting homeless youth the resources they need. Today, the city says the Department of Youth and Community Development will receive 600 vouchers as part of the city's federal aid package. This gives 600 homeless youth a chance to search for affordable housing. Clark Adamitis, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Clark. And finally, 59 years ago today, July 15th, 1962, New York's WBAI broadcast talk show featuring eight gay men. It seems such a small thing. Back then, it was a huge thing. Early in 1962, WBAI, New York's listener-supported progressive radio station, which still exists today, aired an hour-long special, The Homosexual in America. It featured a panel of psychiatrists who described gay people as sick and in need of a cure, a cure that they could provide with just a few hours of therapy. Gay activist and founder of the Homosexual League of New York, Randy Wicker, was livid, not only at the ignorance of these so-called experts, but also because, once again, there was a panel of straight people talking about gay people they didn't even know. Wicker went to the WBAI studios, confronted Dick Elman, the station's public affairs director, he said, why do you have these people on that don't know a damn thing about homosexuality? They don't live it. They breathe it the way I do. I spend my whole life in gay society. Wicker demanded equal time. And guess what? Elman agreed, providing Wicker 
and other gay people willing to go on the air as part of a panel. When plans for the program were announced, the New York Journal-American went ballistic. Jack O'Brien, the paper's radio TV columnist, wrote that the station should change his call sign to WSICK for agreeing to air an arrogant card-carrying swish. And you should read more about this article. It's at Back to Stonewall. The website is called Back Number 2 Stonewall. Check out the rest of that article and understand why it's so important to have WBAI radio here. We might make a few mistakes, but we always come around and we're on the side of the people.